Hello, and welcome to the Common Good Project. My name is Chris Conway, and I am the co-convener of the project. Thank you for joining us in this lecture series entitled Regulations and the Common Good, Compliant to the Common Wind. This is part two of the first lecture in the series, titled Revisiting the Morality of Law in Regard to Regulations. Without further ado, we rejoin Ryan Mead. Now for part two, some very quick, what are my philosophical assumptions in the groundwork for looking at the morality of law in regards to regulations? And I would say the question of the morality of law in general. Well, I, I, I think that law and society are two things which I believe, but not everyone believes, are, are inescapable. We can't escape law and society. As long as there have been persons, there have been law and society. Uh, I put this out there now uh, about my point of law and society being essential. Uh, and particularly, as I'll, I'll, I'll note in a moment, that society and being social is, 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 a, is part of our nature and it is a natural inclination of us as humans. But this is a subtext of the ideas I'll be exploring. And a key assumption in the morality of law is that there has been no pre-society. There, there was and is no Lockean or Hobbesian state of nature, neither history or metaphorical history, where the individual has stood completely alone, simply as the individual, and then met another individual who is completely alone as another individual. And they've agreed in, as is often described a social contract uh, to form a society. Humans are naturally drawn to society, naturally drawn to communities because we have a social nature. And it is not something that we need to negotiate with others, there's certainly many ways of, of, of living with others and uh, figuring out how to be just in our relations with each other where we have to work it out with people. But we're working it out in the context of society. We, we don't need to make an initial contract. And I don't think that it's helpful in my view to think that we are individuals who have somehow metaphorically, even metaphorically, uh, made a contract with other individuals uh, such that we are free agents and able always to simply float around or float away as, as individuals. Uh, I, I think that's simply not reality. Um, there uh, are certainly when we look at societies, it's, it's not always by what I mean by being social in societies is not always the big society of a country or a state or a nation state or our nation, but uh, small societies there, such as the family. There are primitive societies. There are dysfunctional societies, even chaotic and anarchic societies. And these, these latter may seem oxymoronic, uh, but they could even be societies, but even a chaotic society as we'll discuss uh, in another lecture, is a society. We, we, we simply can't escape society. Uh, and putting it in a different way, we, we are not alone uh, as individuals. We 
have never been alone uh, as, as individuals. Uh, that's also why I think when we, if, if, if uh, you agree with my points here and, and are in agreement on, on uh, my assumptions, you may also agree with me that the deprivation of society is the most painful punishment a community can inflict on a person because the deprivation of society is an attempt to separate a person from his nature. Uh, isolated banishment in ancient civilizations was sometimes viewed as worse than execution. And, and we see this in day-to-day -day life today in small societies. The most painful punishment that a person can suffer from a family is being ostracized from a family. The most painful punishment, it seems, that uh, a person can suffer from friends are not, is, is not, are not harsh words, but the loss of a friendship, of being separated from that friend. So we, we see this in the negative. We, in, in my view, we see the essential nature of, of, of society. We see our social nature also by how we react when we're deprived of society, either by choice and we recognize what we've done when we've separated ourselves from society or when society has uh, attempted to separate a person from that society. Um, many find this idea that we are never alone and have never been alone comforting. I certainly do. I find it very comforting that we are never alone. But for reasons that are uh, partly obscure to me, uh, much of Western culture today seems to find this idea terrifying. Now, it's, it's only fair also that in the theoretical discussion that uh, if there are uh, a list of really important assumptions besides just these the basic assumptions that I've just given that it seems fair that, I, that a person set those out. So, so I wanna set out very quickly and I'll run through these and next week I'm gonna discuss them more in the discussion on metaphysics and how, uh, that, uh, how metaphysics ties in with law and the common good. But uh, my five fundamental notions are that one, we are social, which I've just discussed a bit. Uh, second is that there's a normative good that is real. Third, that although we can freely choose, so we have free will, but we cannot think, speak, or act except in a social context. Number four, that everything has a purpose and that everything points to some end, even if it does not achieve that end. And five, that there is a, a unity of reality. Now, some listeners may, may disagree with the first four principles on our social nature, normative goodness or normative morality, that we act and think in a social context and that everything has a purpose. You, you may disagree with those, but it's uh, even if you disagree with those, those ideas are likely not foreign to you. Now, my, my fifth first principle, that there's a unity of reality, is something that may be a little bit more obscure to listeners, and that's because it deals with metaphysics, at least as I will treat it in, uh, in the second lecture. And, and for those of you uh, who uh, have a background in, in, in metaphysics and philosophy, if uh, uh, 
if you're thinking I might be asserting some type of theory of universalism with the unity of reality, um, don't worry, um, I won't be going there. <laughs> I will avoid nominalism and, and universalism um, in this. But the, the, these, the fourth and fifth principles, that everything has a purpose or an end, and that there's a unity of reality are closely connected. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, if I eventually uh, argue for a unity of reality, then all five are connected. Indeed, all principles are connected. Whatever I can come up with, whatever you can come up with are, are connected. Whether I'm using an unspoken sixth principle all the way to an unspeakable infinity principle, uh, all principles are connected, connected if, there's a, if there's a unity of, of reality. So if there is a dominant philosophical theme woven into the cloth of these lectures on regulations, or as some might see these lectures on law, it's, it's metaphysics. Uh, and metaphysics describes the first things of reality as well, and perhaps most importantly, the last things of reality. You might be wondering why. Uh, it, I've titled the lecture series, Compliant to the Common Wind. Uh, that has to do with metaphysics. It's a line from T.S. Eliot's Little Gidding among his four quartets. And next week, I'm, I'm going to start out by describing that. All right, so now let's, as we get to the end, it, it will get quicker and quicker with these last parts. I get to some descriptions, three descriptions of terms I'm going to use um, uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and the three terms that I wanted to, want to uh, describe are a regulating authority, a regulated actor, and a regulation. And I'm going to try to describe these in ways that can accommodate multiple states, multiple jurisdictions. Um, even though, as I mentioned, I, I'll, I'll use most of the UK and the US and a little bit of Canada and Australia in other, in other lectures, but, uh, but I, I, I want to describe them generally. So by regulating authority, I mean a person, office, agency, committee, or person or group of people who assert the authority and force of the state to issue ordinances that command persons to do something or refrain from something such that their commands have the force and effect of law in the same or similar manner as law passed by the constitutional order's conventional legislative process. This means that the regulation is enforced by the state with the full force, including physical force if needed, as befits a state. In most jurisdictions, the regulating authority is the executive or acts in the name of the executive. However, since constitutional orders take many forms, there may be polities that do not claim to have an executive. And so the regulating authority may simply assert that it is acting on behalf of the state. Regulating authorities as I use it are in any scenario agents of the state, whether the regulating authority answers to a legislature, an executive or judiciary. This term regulating authority may satisfy no one who is listening to me today. And that's why I've chosen it. Um, because states use so many different terms to describe this regulating authority. And some states even use the term regulating authority uh, that I'm trying to find some term that simply describes the actions of an office or person that is acting on behalf of the state, using executive function to 
promulgate regulations. By regulated actor, I mean a person, whether a natural person, that is a human being, or a fictional or juridical person, that is the fictional treatment of the corporate form as a person under the law for the efficiency of applying law and legal status to a non-human association or office. So, so it's a, a, nat a, 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 a juridical person is, is not like you or I. It, it, it is, as it's uh, noted, it's, it's a fiction created for an efficiency. Um, in my view, it, it, it happens to be a, a very good thing, and it happens to be something which is important for justice. And it is one of the great contributions that Roman law uh, provided us, the, the notion of corporate personality. Um, so a regulated actor can be a natural person, or it can be a fictional person. Uh, it, for the purposes of these lectures, it's likely sufficient we simply think of a regulated actor as a human being, which uh, it's easier, I think, for us to think about regulations in that way when we think about how I am regulated or you are regulated in your acts. Then lastly, by regulation, I mean those ordinances which are, as, uh, as I described them uh, here, one of two types. So the first type is, a, is secondary legislation promulgated principally by a regulating authority that has been given jurisdiction to regulate actors through specific primary legislation. This is the type of regulation that uh, people often think of when they uh, think of the, uh, the Administrative Procedure Act and the processes there in the US or statutory instruments laid before parliament in the UK. There's primary legislation being a law that becomes law through the conventional legislative process. And then secondary legislation are regulations where there's been a delegation to some part of the executive to fill in the gaps. And depending upon the jurisdiction or the specific delegation to a regulating authority, those regulations, the, the, the details of the gaps, uh, may either be promulgated directly by the authority that the office has through that primary legislation, or the primary legislation may require the regulation to go back to the legislature for some type of review. In the UK, there's a negative procedure and an affirmative procedure, so there are different, different procedures by which uh, statutory instruments as regulations are laid before Parliament, and uh, particularly the negative procedure, uh, it still, I believe, conforms uh, uh, with my general view of regulations as being something from the executive, because in the negative procedure, the uh, Parliament uh, Parliament has very little ability to change the uh, to change the wording. It could it can only at most do a type of veto on it. it. It can't tinker and change change a word. So the regulation through the statutory instrument presented through a negative procedure laid before parliament originates with the executive. And that statutory instrument, although it might be filling in the gaps of a, a statute of an act, is expressing the vision, the value vision, the morality that the executive brings to 
making decisions and deciding on what what those gaps uh, uh, sometimes what 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 are the gaps, but also how the gaps should be filled. So that's the first type of regulation that I'm talking about, and and I will discuss secondary legislation quite a bit, but most of my lectures will will focus on the second form of regulation. Second form of regulation involves ordinances of a regulating authority promulgated under its office as an agent of the state in order to administer the state or fulfill the purpose or ends of the state. These regulations typically find their authority for promulgating regulations that are binding as law in three ways, as I count them. The authority for the executive to make these regulations and bind them as law is first because there may be some primary legislation that cannot be enforced without the executive making decisions. So the legislation may not contemplate that regulations be made, may not contemplate that regulations uh, as in the form of statutory instruments come back before parliament. But there's, there's simply no way to uh, enforce the statute or to make sure that the act comes alive as law unless the executive makes regulations that fills in those gaps. In the first type of regulation, the, the gaps are filled in uh, with uh, where there's, there, there's, there's, a, an ex, there's a type of uh, explicit expectation that the executive would fill in those gaps. In this second form of regulation in the first way that, that an executive might uh, fill in gaps, uh, it, it may not be on its face contemplated in the words, or clearly set out in the words that the executive would make regulations. But if the executive doesn't make regulations, the, the act may have no meaning uh, because it, it, it simply may, might be deficient in some way. So it might be a very clear expression of a policy goal a very clear expression of what the legislature wants the state uh, to enforce and uh, how the community uh, should relate to each other. Um, but there are sometimes it's, it's simply the, the executive needs to make decisions in order to make that, that act uh, become even more uh, alive as law. The second way a, a, the executive might find authority to promulgate law is simply the authority of the of the office uh, of the executive might be set and derived by by a constitute by the constitution. Um, I was about to say a constitution, but um, but uh, I, I want to correct my words in case anybody heard that um, by the state's constitution. Uh, constitutions take many forms. They're not always written. Uh, they are sometimes unwritten, as we know in the British constitution and in many states, and I would argue uh, most states uh, that have a written constitution, there is always some form of the constitution that's, that's not written, that, that orders the state in some way. So, so the, the second way may be because the office of the executive is, uh, sits and exists in the constitutional order 
such that it's expected, clearly expected by the Constitution that the office would promulgate these laws. There may be in a written Constitution, it may be very clear that the executive is allowed to do certain things and promulgate certain uh, uh, commands that have the force of law. Or it might be by convention uh, that the executive has this authority. But it, the second type is where it's, it's established in uh, the constitutionalism of the state that the office has that authority. The third is perhaps uh, the third way that the executive might uh, uh, promulgate regulations is perhaps the most controversial is that the authority of the executive to prom promulgate regulations as law may be derived by the virtue of the executive being an officer of the state and as the executive of the state. So this is, uh, and, and I, would, I, I would say that this is not completely departing from constitutionalism. It's, uh, it, is, uh, it, it still finds itself in the realm of, of, of constitutionalism and looking at what the executive is. I set this out as a third way that the executive may, may promulgate uh, regulations that have the force of law by virtue of the office of the executive as a third uh, uh, way, because it's not always evident that when the executive does this, that the executive is uh, acting within the constitution of that state. Uh, but, uh, but, but uh, I believe there are arguments that, that, that uh, this can be uh, within uh, a, a good constitutionalist uh, uh, order of the state, uh, even if what the executive is promulgating is, is not found in legislation, not found in, uh, in code, and not found in convention. Uh, what I'm not arguing is, is that the executive should set aside convention, or that the executive should set aside legislation, uh, or the executive should set aside written code. But, uh, but I do believe there are times, and I would think that when, when we think about it deeply, there, this third form of authority for, uh, for promulgating regulations by the executive is, is necessary and essential uh, for the safety of, of a community. Uh, and it, it has uh, quite a bit to do uh, with preserving the state, uh, doing justice, ensuring the safety of the, of the community that the executive has the care for. Um, I, I will describe how I, I do believe that this, this needs to be carefully exercised. And it is not unbounded. Uh, it, it might be physically unbounded until the next election <laughs> or in systems where governments can fall and, uh, and elections can occur quickly. Uh, that provides a, a very nice regulator of executive action. Um, but uh, normative morality and the common good are the limiting principles of the, the executive here. And just to, to end this, this piece, if, if your 
questioning at this point, well, is that, is that even, uh, you know, it's just, it just simply might feel uncomfortable uh, with this notion that the executive can promulgate something that has the force of law and not point to something that's written or has, has, has occurred before. I, uh, I do think if we think about it, emergencies, uh, th there has to be some authority that uh, provides direction and is uh, caring for the community. Um, in, the, in an emergency, assuming that the state uh, is, is, is uh, justly organized and the executive is occupying that role in a, in a, in a just way, uh, that that executive has the care of the community and may simply not have time to go to the legislature. Uh, it may need to act quickly. So we can think about this in our ordinary lives and think about uh, situations of delegated authority outside the state. Uh, think about families, for example. Uh, if perhaps the parents are, parents are gone, uh, the care of the children might be delegated to uh, the oldest sibling, happens quite often. And the oldest sibling has the care of the community, has the care of the younger siblings. And that oldest sibling has delegated authority. The parents have delegated authority to that older sibling to uh, watch over the younger siblings. But what happens when something comes up that threatens the other children what, that threatened the, the community. What does that, that older sibling who has the delegated authority do? Now, in, in, in a calm moment, uh, one would hope that the, the, that older sibling would think about very much how the parent would act or how the delegator would act or think about what uh, the specific delegated authority uh, is that has been given to the older older child. So perhaps the, the parent in, in, in leaving has given a list of 20 enumerated powers that the, uh, that the older sibling can, can do. And if the situation arises and it can be decided by those 20 enumerated powers that the parent wrote down, that's fantastic. Uh, they, they can make the decision. Or if it goes off a little bit uh, and the, the oldest sibling doesn't quite know what to do, they could think about, well, what would the delegator do? What would my parent do in this situation? Um, but there are going to be some times where the risk to the community or the risk to the other children is so quick and so immediate that the the, uh, the oldest child needs to act and needs to act as the one who has care of the community to safeguard those children uh, and to safeguard the, 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 uh, who they have care of. Uh, it, it, it's wonderful. It would be wonderful if the oldest child has taken on and absorbed the model of, of a virtuous parent. And so uh, almost by habit, uh, and reflex, the oldest child would know what are the good things to do to protect. And that conforms to what the parent 
uh, it does because the parent has modeled virtue and, and good actions on keeping the family safe. But uh, the reality is that there, there may be many things that come up that the oldest child has never seen before, never seen the parent deal with before, has to make a decision. Well, what would we want the oldest child to do? Uh, do nothing? Um, we look to the list of 20 enumerated powers in the instructions and say, well, the, the instructions don't tell me how to, how to deal with this emergency, so I guess I should do nothing, or I guess I, I can't do anything. I think most of us would expect or want and understand the situation that that older sibling inherent in their office as having care of the community delegated by the parent, there's something inherent in that office that allows them to take action and safeguard the children. And that may be issuing commands which the other children need to follow that will bind them in conscience uh, and can be enforced with penalty for, for their safety. Um, and and, and so, so I'm describing this in an emergency situation and perhaps I'm describing this in an extreme situ, uh, situation, but I, I'm describing it there to show that there must be some situation in which the executive, uh, an office holder, can act by virtue of the office of executive function of the state to care for the community. If we can see it in emergency situations and agree that it's there in emergency situations, then it's there. It doesn't mean that it's right to use it in every instance. It doesn't mean that whatever the executive does is going to be moral or just, no more than any, whatever the legislature uh, comes up with and passes is just and moral. But it's there. It's there at least in emergency situations. And so we can see and we can find that there is some inherent uh, authority, something in the virtue of the office of the executive to reference to in an emergency so that the executive can regulate with the force of law. Now, to wrap up in my part four, and I promised this would be the quickest and it will be the quickest. And I appreciate everyone who has uh, stuck with me uh, through this lecture. Uh, this, this last section uh, will only be a few minutes because uh, on the morality of, of, of law in respect to regulations in what I'll call the morality paradox, as I'll explain in a moment. It, it, this only needs to be a few minutes for now, because I have a simple thesis that all law involves value choices. And this includes regulations. Value choices express morality. Now we might refine that term morality a bit in future lectures, but I, for, for the moment, I, I think it's okay. I hope it's okay to, uh, to, to, to um, use the terms interchangeably, values and morality. Uh, uh, now, this is not to say, when I say that all law involves value choices or a vision of values or an attempted morality, this is not to say that I believe all value choices are equal. And in later lectures, we'll be discussing normative uh, morality. But today, I simply want to assert that we must talk about morality 
or values, if you will, when we talk about laws. Laws involve a vision of who we are as humans and individuals, who we are as a community, what the legislator believes as right or wrong relations. And even an argument that law is neutral or should be neutral with respect to our morality, that seems to be a moral statement in itself. Uh, there can be no such thing as value neutral law. I would also go further to say that there's no such thing as value neutral enforcement of law. Not all laws can be enforced equally. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes there's simply too many of them enforced to, to figure out how to enforce them all and enforce them all equally. Triaging non-compliance and exercising discretion in enforcement involves value judgments. On some level, this simply seems obvious, yet there's in many quarters a hesitancy to acknowledge that law involves morality. This is also seen in regulations, or perhaps it is better to say it is not seen in regulations to the extent that regulations, as I noted earlier, uh, receive far less attention um, than statutes. But uh, nevertheless, it is like the the point uh, is that regulations, as they're drafted by the regulator, express a vision of morality, express values. Uh, and regulations, because they tend to be free of the give and take of legislation, tend to express a clearer and more articulate vision of an attempted morality by the executive. That's not to say that the executive isn't going to draft regulations, accommodating for this or that, or thinking about the, this consequence or, or, or that consequence. But uh, the regulations uh, do tend to have a clearer more moral vision and tend to articulate uh, an attempted morality uh, in, in, a, in a clearer way than legislation does. This question of the morality of law seems inescapable, uh, but very few people, it seems, want to talk about the morality of law. That's, that's the paradox of it. When put to the test, it's hard to imagine any member of a legislature or any regulator or any executive saying that they do not have a value system which motivates their draft bill, their vote, or their draft regulation. Most voters will agree the same at the same time, that their vote is expressing some value or they're making a choice based on values. They may not completely agree with the candidate that they're, they're, they're voting for, but they've, they've made decisions. They've made a decision that, uh, that this person or this, that party uh, is, is closer to the value system that I believe is best for society than the other. Um, so yet at the same time, there's a great reluctance and hesitancy to talk about values and morality and law. So thank you very much for joining today and I look forward to next week. And on that, uh, that teaser for next week, I think this is a, a good place to, to end today's lecture. Uh, so uh, thank you all for, for joining us today. Uh, we have a very full schedule next week uh, with the conversation series. So uh, be sure to check that out on the Common Good Project website and, uh, and please sign up. Uh, we also look forward to uh, your joining us next Friday 
uh, at the same time for lecture two of this series, which is titled The Common Good and the Metaphysics of Law. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to keep up on our events, please follow The Common Good Project on Twitter. Or you can find a full listing of our past and future events by visiting the University of Oxford Faculty of Law's website. Thank you.